Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its 40th year, this multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. As the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material, Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Seven decades ago, the first television adaptation of Superman arrived. Now, it's time to rocket back to the 1952-1958 series Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves. In this rewatch podcast, my guests and I break down each episode from its black and white crime drama beginnings to the kid-friendly color seasons as we celebrate one of the most underrated Man of Steel depictions of all time. Welcome to another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss season one, episode 17, The Runaway Robot, is Fat Moose Comics' very own Gene Cahill. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm excited to have you here. Very recently, we had a mutual friend of ours, Rich Roney, on for a couple of different episodes. And we've often joked that you are the Earth 2 version of Rich Roney. You guys are contemporaries. You grew up enjoying a lot of the same things, both fans of the Justice Society of America and both big fans of Adventures of Superman. And it was great having him on for a couple of recent episodes. And he talked all about growing up in the 60s and watching Adventures of Superman in syndication and just falling in love with it and how formative George Reeves was for him. So I'm very curious to to get your perspective on all of this and what it was like for you growing up. I mean, how and when and where did you first encounter the show? Oh, so um, when I was a kid, I lived in northern Pennsylvania, um, right on the border of New York State. And there, the TV there was, eh, you know, I mean, mostly through an antenna and things like that. But, um, you know, we're, I was born in 59, which, you know, was technology was at quite a different point. And um, we used to get from New York WPIX Channel 11, and they would show the adventures of Superman. So there were kind of three things in the 60s that were my formative superhero things. Um, the Adventures of Superman, the Batman TV series, and those terrible, cheesy Marvel cartoons, the Marvel superhero show, um, where they, you know, did Submariner, the Hulk, Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor in like little cartoons that looked like they had basically just cut panels out and were moving like the characters across the panels. But um, Adventures of Superman was out of those was probably the absolute biggest for me. Um, it was 
I mean, I, you know, as a kid seeing that for the first time, it was like just mind blowing. And, um, I instantly fell in love with the show to this day. If you ask me who my favorite Superman is, I will always say George Reeves. Um, because he was the first and he was the person that embodied that whole Superman aura for me. Um, it's just, to, uh, and I, I used to watch them constantly. It's, it's actually been a few years since I've done a run through of them. So it was nice because I, seeing the runaway robot, I watched it twice through today. Um, and took a few notes and things about the guest stars and everything. So, um, but it, it just, I, I got that same feeling watching it now that I did when I was five years old. I mean, it just, it's amazing. Now that's, it's so wonderful to hear. And, and also that, that George Reeves remains, you know, your Superman in your heart. And, and not that it's a, George Reeves versus Christopher Reeve thing, right? We, we can all like both of them, love both of them and all of that. But uh, I, I guess in part because I've been so so entrenched in the George Reeves iteration and the show and everything, it, you know, to hear something like that is is really cool. Because again, I know I know how formative the, the, the Christopher Reeve, you know, Donnerverse version of the character was for so many people. Like even people who grew up with Adventures of Superman. It's like once that movie came around, it really seemed to just cement for so many people and it again, it's, just, it's I think it's just cool that the George Reeves iteration still stands uh, at the top for you. I love Christopher Reeve, though. I have to say the first two, the Superman and Superman 2 are, are two fantastic films. And I just I love those movies. Um, I don't think, you, you know, you'll ever see a better origin of Superman than the first Superman film. That that movie to me is is just like iconic. So, no. but you're right; you can love them both. So, no, absolutely. And then again, I know encountering the George Reeves show at such a formative time the way you did, I'm sure that accounts in large part for why you still have so much uh, affection for it. But again, especially as you've gotten older, and even if it's been a while since you've done a a, a watch through, what is it about? the show generally and or the Reeves depiction specifically that, that, that continues to resonate so much with you. Cause it's, again, as we've been talking about on the show, it's not, it's not as if it's all, it's so divorced from the rest of the Superman mythology, but it has, you know, it really kind of carves its own path, especially in the, especially in this first season, these very gritty, uh, you know, crime drama oriented episodes. But like, what is it about the show and about Reeves that, that still is a pull for you after all these decades? I don't, you know, it's interesting. I think because his Superman is just, when I think of Superman, I think of like, you know, they say, oh, Superman, he's the ultimate boy scout. He's, you know, the, the, the George Reeves Superman to me, just, I love, he's no nonsense. I love that he is. He comes into a situation and takes charge. I, I kind of like the idea that he doesn't spend a lot of time as Superman. Like he's mostly Clark Kent crusading reporter, but when he needs to be Superman, he is, he goes in, does his Superman thing and then leaves. Um, I, I think it's a very interesting depiction in that way because, you know, they always say that Clark Kent is the, is a real identity and Superman is like the super identity. 
for Superman. You know, he is really Clark Kent, but Superman is 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 like the facade, unlike of course Batman, where it's the other way around almost, where it's like Batman is a real person and Bruce Wayne is the facade. But um and I love his I love his his Clark Kent. I've never been a fan of like the sort of weenie like mewling like oh i can't do that i'm gonna pass out clark can um i like that he is a, a, like he's an established reporter he um he under he understands what he needs to do he um he gets things done as clark kent not just as superman i love his camaraderie with inspector henderson um, I love his relationship with Jimmy, the whole mentoring thing. I, I mean, it's just, there's so many things about the show that just, I just like that sort of little mini universe of Superman, Anthony, you know, it just, and I, and I, I, I have to say, and I hate to pick favorites because I actually got the opportunity to meet Noel Neal, who was lovely, but Phyllis Coates in that first season, she is like, take charge, take no garbage. And she has the best scream ever. Yes. And we, we get to hear it in this episode and. Oh yes, we do. And you're, you're, you're in good company. Uh, you know, this is, really has become a theme uh, this first season uh, on this podcast here. I mean, every single guest who has expressed an opinion has been uh, in favor of, of Phyllis Coates. We, we enjoy both performances, but uh, everyone really seems to gravitate towards Phyllis Coates. But no, I, I agree with everything you said. I think that's been one of the things, you know, of course, I'm still a lot newer to this uh, Adventures of Superman series, but how how central, how confident, how capable Clark is, is definitely a huge draw. And yeah, how, how no-nonsense <laughs> this version of Superman is really that golden age mold, especially in this first season. Uh, it has just oh, been yeah. such a joy to, in this case, rewatch. Um, it, it's been so much fun. I thought this was a very interesting episode because I looking at scanning through the list of episodes, I think this really was the first like real comic relief episode they did because everything else this season seems very gritty and very dark film noir crime stuff. And then you've got this episode with the crazy inventor and his, his robot. And it's like, wow, this, this just really like is very different tone than most of the rest of the season. Okay, so perfect segue. So we're here to talk about The Runaway Robot, Season 1, Episode 16, aired January 9th, 1953, written by Dick Hamilton, directed by Tommy Carr. My synopsis, a crime-fighting robot created by eccentric inventor and Daily Planet rural correspondent Horatio Hinkle falls into the hands of criminals, and it's up to the Daily Planet crew to find the robot and clear Horatio's name. So... You've already started to address this, but let me let me toss it to you first. What... What, I guess a two-part question. What are your overall impressions of this episode? And also, how did this compare to to whatever memories you had of it? You know what? It it kind of it to me it it was just like embracing an old friend. It was great. Um, I mean, it was a little silly. Um, and Horatio Hinko is definitely played for comedy. But um, it's got an amazing guest cast, I have to say. Um, and you get to see, like, sort of, you get to see Jimmy being naive. You get to see Perry White blustering. You get to see Henderson 
doing his whole officious thing. I mean, it's everybody gets to sort of do their, you get to see Lois scheming and getting into a mess because of her scheming and then screaming to get out of her scheming. It's like everybody sort of has their little character moment, which is almost like their defining characteristic. So it's very interesting. That's a, that's a good point. And I also, I, I could see especially why, why you would have that impression of not having rewatched a lot of these recently. So I, I you know, I, I don't disagree with that. I think I, I probably am a bit more on the critical side of this episode, but in large part, I think because I've been watching all of these and like really studying them and having these in-depth discussions about them, and we've covered some really strong episodes. And as far as my overall impressions, I, for the most part, I had fun with this episode. I think the, to your point, the guest past the guest cast far and away was my favorite part of this. I think they they really made this episode sing. But I, for me, this fell a little flat. I'll, I'll be honest. I was I was exhausted when I watched it last night. I was a little fried, and maybe I wasn't in the best headspace. But as I was watching it, I guess a couple of things that I bumped up against. One was, I, I agree with you that this was was probably the first of the ones that we've covered that that did lean more into the, uh, you know, the the humorous side, I suppose. But it was to me very reminiscent of the mind machine earlier in the first season where you had the gangsters, right? And again, uh, the, the show and this season in particular, it's typically these gangsters were going up against in each episode. But just like the mind machine, there's this sci-fi component, right? In this case, a robot. And so it felt reminiscent of that, but I just thought mind machine just, it just was firing on all cylinders. That has been one of my favorites so far out of, out of what we've looked at in season one. And I just didn't feel like this one kind of rose to that level. So by, so again, it called to mind that episode, but it, it didn't live up to it for me. So that was a little bit of a hindrance to my enjoyment. And then the other thing too, I guess not, not to, not to beat up on this episode, but I, I guess I just felt like not only there, not only was there very little Superman, which for the most part, I, I don't really have an issue with, but I felt like even Clark didn't really do much in this episode, like didn't really accomplish much. And we'll do our scene by scene breakdown and we'll talk about it. But he was just kind of there more than I feel like we've seen in most of these episodes where he's far more of an of an active agent in these episodes. So I think those were the two things that kind of held it back for me. I can't disagree with you there. I was actually going to mention the fact that that Clark just he's he's isn't really pivotal in this episode. I mean, the only major thing that happens is that he comes in at the very end and you know and and resolves the issue. But everything prior to that, he has a very minor part in. He's um, he doesn't really do a whole heck of a lot. Most of the action is Jimmy and and Lois. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, we'll we'll unpack all of it. But as far as the guest cast, so it's funny. I'm watching this, and the the head gangster Chopper, I'm watching him, and looks familiar, but I can't quite place him. The voice, for whatever reason, I, I reference "It's a Wonderful Life" a lot. the The voice reminded me, and I don't know if people will get what I'm saying or be like, "Where? What, what, what is he talking about?" But it reminded me of Nick the bartender from It's a Wonderful Life. Just the the sound and just like the cadence, it just kind of 
uh, the patter of his of his voice, it just reminded me of that. Obviously, I knew it wasn't that actor, but I, I it was really bothering me. Like, who is this guy? And then, of course, I looked him up on IMDb uh, as soon as I was done. And Russell Johnson, the professor from yep. Gilligan's Island. Yep. He was uh, very well known as a character actor back in the 50s. So starred in a couple major sci-fi movies, This Island Earth, and um, it came from outer space, did a lot of other stuff before The Professor. Um, but yeah, it was very interesting to hear him doing that. And I, I do agree. He did he did sort of have that like that like Nick from um, It's a Wonderful Life, like gangster sort of, you know, the the uh, you know, Sheldon Leonard who played Nick and that sort of cliche gangster um, accent. Yeah. Well, th- all right. So thank you. I'm, I wasn't crazy then, but uh, did you grow up watching it's a wonder, uh, not it's a wonderful life. Uh, well that too, but specifically Gilligan's Island. Oh yeah. That was uh, uh, reruns after school every, every afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to save it for myself on TV land or Nick at night or wherever I caught it. Uh, I don't know that I ever, I mean, it was only a few seasons. I, it, it's funny if I tally them all up, I probably ended up seeing a, a, a substantial portion of the show. It's not, it's funny. I have, we talk about like classic TV. I've, I've referenced many times my love for the honeymooners and I watch that every new year's and that's always, you know, very near and dear to me. Uh, but as far as kind of classic TV that was over by the time I was growing up, but that I caught in reruns, happy days was huge for me. Uh, and I still, uh, you know, I, I wish it were more readily available. I would actually be happy to to spend some time with that show again. Gilligan's Island never really rose to that level for me, but like I watched enough of it and I, I know the, the show and the characters and all of that. So once I realized who this actor was, I said, oh, like that's, that was so cool to see, you know, to see him in that, that earlier role. Well, it's funny you say that. I guess it's generational because um, when I was a kid, of course, growing, you know, growing up, I wasn't a teenager until the seventies. So a lot of the formative stuff I saw was 60 sitcoms, you know, I dream of genie, bewitched the monsters, Am's family, Gilligan's Island, all that stuff was sort of like sewn into my, my TV DNA. So F troop, yeah, all that stuff was, you know, and there were so many actors that did guest starring roles across multiple series. As you look on, I looked up the the guest cast on IMDb and you see there's like, okay, they were in Bonanza and they were in I Dream of Genie and they were in The Man from Uncle and they were in like all these actors were like jobbing actors that did a lot of different TV series. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And so speaking of the the rest of the folks who were in this one, so we had uh, Robert Easton as Marvin, the associate of Professor Hinkles, who he was able to to get on the radio. Uh, John Harmon as Mousy, one of the one of the crooks. Dan Seymour, I love this guy as Rocco, one of the other henchmen. This is his third and final, I believe, uh, appearance on Adventures of Superman. He was Lou Cranick in the Mind Machine, and of course, of course, he was Ace in the stolen costume, uh, which mm. we we had great fun uh, discussing not too long ago. Uh, and he's back here. I love this guy. As I talked about in that episode, he, for whatever reason, he just gives me kind of like a Jackie Gleason-esque vibe. Uh, and again, as this Honeymooners fan, I, I, I tend to gravitate towards him. So I was happy to see him pop up again. You know, I always confuse him with Victor Bruno, who played King Tut. Okay. For some reason, when I see him, but he was he was a big Humphrey Bogart 
um, co-star. He was in Casablanca. He's like the main heavy in Key Largo. Um, he had a huge long career. And um, he was also in Batman 66. Right. He was the, I, it was the, he was the Ma, Maharaja of Nimpa in one of the episodes with the Joker. Yes, yes. I will admit, and I'm sure I've said this when this came up before. Yeah, but the 66 Batman series, I've only ever dabbled, only dipped my toes in the water of, of that show. But I know how formative that was for so many fans, and I, I, I appreciate it. I don't know. I don't know if I'll, I'll ever. It's funny. I, <laughs> you never know where <laughs> where things will take you because I say this now, and it's like cut to a few years from now, and I'll be doing a rewatch podcast of that. So you, you never know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do know he popped up on there, and that's very cool. And then, of course, of course, our our, our MVP, I, I think it's fair to say, of this, uh, as Horatio Hinkle, uh, Lucian, I don't know if that's the correct way to say it, but Littlefield as, uh, as Horatio Hinkle. This was, I, I think to whatever extent this episode worked, it worked because of, of what Littlefield brought to the character of Horatio, just this like kooky, eccentric, lovable, yet frustrating <laughs> inventor. And one thing that I, I was unaware of, but I was, I think I came across this uh, reading a review of the episode on supermanhomepage.com, but the review talked about how uh, Hinkle was based on uh, uh, the character Horatio Hook, who first appeared in the Superman newspaper strip, and then later was uh, Horatio Horn in the radio serial. So mm-hmm. there, there were there were sort of uh, precursors to this character in other media leading up to. Did you have any any background in this character, or any familiarity? No, not really. I I do know he did remind me of. I mean, later on in the the color episodes, you had Professor Pepperwinkle, yep. who was the eccentric inventor that ends up getting everybody in trouble. So, and I think they did five episodes with Professor Pepperwinkle over the seasons, but he was almost like the precursor to that to me. So did you, and this was the only time he appeared. I know in this, the Horatio only appeared once in the show. So. And so that's what I wanted to ask. Did you, especially after rewatching this, did you, did you come away feeling like once was enough with Hinkle and I, and I am happy with Pepperwinkle or did you feel like, Oh, I wish that that Hinkle had come back either in addition to, or instead of the other character Pepperwinkle that we got later on in the show. And, you know, I was fine with, I'm fine with one appearance. I mean, he was, I actually professor Pepperwinkle kind of got old after a while because the, the whole crazy inventor that gets the, the characters into trouble is almost like it, it's a trope in superhero stuff. So, you know, a little bit goes a long way, shall we say? Fair enough. All right. Let's dive into our scene by scene approach to this episode. But actually before we do that, I did have one more big picture question that I wanted to ask you. I was going to save it for the end, but let me, let me ask you now. Just while we're talking about your adventures of Superman fandom and all of that, I'm curious, what, or how do I put this? I mean, how how often have you had the opportunity to even connect with other adventures of Superman fans or talk about stuff like this? Like, to to what extent have you gotten the sense that this show is still on fans' minds, or you know, so to speak? Oh, I definitely know there is. I know there's a, a pretty strong fandom for Adventures of Superman. There's a, a group on Facebook called The Adventures Continue, 
Yes. Um, a gentleman that lives in Pennsylvania named Jim Knoll. No, no, yeah, Literally. we've talked. No, 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 and so and I'm sorry, I, yeah. I should have phrased that better. I, I certainly know there are fans out there in the online communities, and right. we've talked about an old site, all that stuff. I guess I meant more, more like personally, like in your day to day life or at the comic shop that you've been a part of, Fat Moose Comics. Like, it, it, have you encountered it more, kind of on that, you know, face to face, interpersonal uh, capacity? Not, not so much. Most, I hate to say this, but mostly, I mean, guys like Rich and I are are like aging fanboys. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of, it's like anything in general. I mean, I am of a certain age where I have certain references that a lot of younger fans don't. So when I mention Adventures of Superman, a lot of people will say to me, oh, I've never watched that. Or, oh, I've heard of that, but I've never really seen it. So it's like, you know, when you're, when you grow up in the sixties and you're used to watching a lot of things that aren't really out there now, it's, you know, when I was a kid, there was no syndication for a lot of old TV mostly because they showed old movies in the evenings and the, and the afternoons. So as time has gone on, it's sort of like newer TV has sort of pushed out older TV. You know what I mean? So it's, I don't really have a, I, I have to say in, in my actual life, I don't know personally a lot of Adventures of Superman fans unless they're people of like my age usually. Gotcha. No, I understand. I, but I, was, I, I was curious and yeah, I know there are wonderful fan groups and sites and all of that. And, you know, now we have this podcast and, you know, one of the things that I've enjoyed doing is, is connecting with folks like you and Rich who, who grew up with this, but also folks like myself who, who are newer to it, but do have some history with it. And then our previous episode, we had someone on who had never watched the show before, and this was their first episode. So it's, and if we can, if we can get some new folks to, to sort of, uh, you know, check this out, uh, I think that's a wonderful thing. And so it's great to kind of talk to people with a variety of perspectives on the show. So, all right, let's go scene by scene now through the runaway robot. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC movie rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Thank you. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw, yeah. Filmmakers and movie fans alike 
should be sure to attend these film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. So we start, we open on this jewelry store with a robbery in progress with Rocco and Mousy stuffing, uh, you know, the, the, the jewels into the bag, the jewelers tied up and all of that. And then they're interrupted and stopped by this, this robot and bullets bounce off of him and all of this. Uh, what, what were your impressions of this robot? And I guess for anyone who maybe has never seen this episode or maybe it's been so long and they don't know, they can't conjure the image in their mind. How would you describe uh, this robot? A very stereotypical 1950 sci-fi robot. I mean, it, basically like it's, it's a guy in a big oversized like welded suit, like just like clunking around. You know, it's funny because you watch like old movie serials and, and, TV from that era and the robots always look the same. They always look like, you know, somebody in like a big welded together suit. Right. Yeah. I, I think the thing that, that came to mind for me was it, this looked like a lower budget clunkier version of like the Tin Man outfit from the Wizard of Oz. Like it had, you know, like that's, that's, I guess what, what came to mind for me. But yeah, that's the robot uh, who, who will be the robot, the, the titular robot of this episode here. And so the, you know, the criminals run off and then the robot is about to stomp the jeweler. He's got his foot on the, 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 the skull. Yeah. Uh, and so that's Horatio emerges. Uh, we'll come to learn he's Horatio, but we see him operating the robot and trying to get the robot to stand down and ultimately has to resort to sort of like a manual override and, you know, appears very pleased with himself. Like he stopped this robbery, right? And, you know, here's police sirens, you know, the police are coming and, you know, presumably expects to be uh, lauded for his efforts here. But then we, we instantly fade into the next scene and this poor guy is, is behind bars, chewing off the ear of the cop on, on, on duty. Did you, did you, especially as, as far as the humor goes, I think this is a perfect <laughs> encapsulation of that, right? I loved when he's uh, rattling off his credentials, as to why he should not be in jail. He's like, you know, like a graduate of the junior detective school and the rural correspondent for the daily planet. And he graduated magna cum laude, although he doesn't say where he graduated from. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was funny. And, and, you know, there's this business about $60,000, even though the robots stopped the, the heist, there's $60,000 in diamonds that are missing. Right. So that's going to, you know, put some teeth onto this episode and this quest now as we move forward to uh, to find the bad guys, retrieve the robot, and, and clear Horatio's name. And then we have our, our heroes arrive, Lois, Clark, and Jimmy, and, you know, Clark hands over a piece of paper to the cop. He's like, you can release him into my custody. I feel like this Clark... This Clark didn't even need a piece of paper. This Clark, this Clark could have just walked in and been like, he's coming with me, and that cop would have been like, all right, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I love about George Reeves Clark. He's just, he's always in charge. He really is. 
you know, there's this, I, I'll jump ahead for just a second. There's a scene later on when they're all leaving uh, Perry White's office and Clark grabs Henderson, li- literally just grabs him and stops him as they're walking. And he goes, hey, Henderson, and it's just, you, you can look at it one of two ways, right? Like they have a friendship, right? So there's a familiarity there, a lack of formality. And that's, I suppose, the correct interpretation. But on the other hand, perhaps you could look at it as, as a lack of respect. It's like, this is, you know, this is the, the head of the police department and Clark's just like manhandling him. And he's like, hey, Henderson, listen up. It's great. <laughs> uh, but I feel like Lois and Clark and Jimmy, they all, like, they clearly know Hinkle and they seem, they seem amused, right? Despite the the circumstances, right? This guy's in jail. There's been this heist. There's missing jewels. You know, they come in, the smiles, like they seem again, kind of more amused by him. Right. Was that your impression? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think there's definitely some untold adventures with that character that, that we've never seen because they, they definitely have a familiarity with him. So, and, and Lois, like, you know, they, they kind of vouch for him in Perry's office. So it definitely seems like there is a, a behind the scenes familiarity there. Yes. Yeah. I love just the Hinkle's voice and just the delivery though. Mr. Mr. Current, Mr. Current. That's not a great impression. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't worked it out yet, but uh, it's funny because in, in a certain respect, like here's a long story short, but a, a former colleague of mine uh, that like he reminded me of. And so that, you know, made me enjoy the character even more, but uh, do you have a Hinkle impression by any chance? No, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I wish I did, but it's okay. <laughs> so yeah, they let him out of the I cell. Have to work on that one. That's quite all right. You know, so they let him out of the cell and, uh, you know, he, he talks about wanting to, he needs to get hero, the robot. And Clark has to break the news to him that the robot's been stolen from the police garage and, um, instructs Jim to take, Horatio to Clark's apartment and, and, you know, keep him company, I think is how Clark puts it, but essentially it's, you know, babysit him, keep him there. You know, he's in Clark's custody uh, and Lois and Clark are going to investigate. It was, it was cool to see Jim who, you know, who's typically like, you know, the, the, the kid and, and all of that, like being in that position. I mean, we'll see where it goes, but uh, you know, seeing him in that, you know, in that capacity. Definitely. It's it, they Clark put a lot of responsibility on Jimmy, which, uh, Unfortunately, he, well, we know what happens with that, but. Yes, which we'll get to in just a second. Before that, we cut to the crooks hideout and they, we quickly immediately learn uh, that they're the ones who stole the robot and they can't get it to work. And uh, again, the professor, (laughs) the boss is, you know, very, very skeptical of this, but they get a call and, and they're tipped off that. Uh, you know, Horatio was released into Clark's custody and, and they know now where, where Horatio is, is staying. But that's the first time that we see the, our group of gangsters we'll be dealing with in this episode. So from there, we go to Clark's apartment where Jim is, is essentially babysitting him and uh, the phone rings and Horatio answers and it's, it's the, 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 the gangster saying, uh, you know, if you want to see a robot again, meet me here, bring $100. I thought what happened next was really fascinating because Horatio tries to put one over on Jim, right? He's like, I'm feeling really thirsty. I could really go for an ice cream soda. Like, would you go down to the drugstore and get us a couple? And Jim was savvy enough to say, I'll call and they'll send them up. What did you think of that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Jimmy, Jimmy definitely knew that Horatio would, would run off on his own if he didn't keep an eye on him. 
So he was pretty savvy there, but he just got he got out outfoxed by technology, unfortunately. He got smoke bombed. I mean, that's but I yeah. think like this this was a so again, there was definitely stuff I liked about this episode. And it, you know, Horatio's it, it was a fascinating character because he he is, you know, kind of kind of kooky and and it's easy to sort of laugh him off. But then you see something like this where he you know, drops the smoke bomb that <laughs> disorients Jim and allows him to escape. And then later on, we'll get to it when he's locked up in the, in the, in the other room in the crook's hideout. And he's got this, this key hidden in the sole of his shoe and a hidden compartment in the robot and the radio that he pulls out. And so there's a, a slyness and a resourcefulness to the character that you wouldn't necessarily assume based on his, uh, you know, the way he, he presents. So I really did like that, but I thought this was I mean, if you had just told me the setup of this scene, right, and you got to the part about, Jim, go get us a couple of ice cream sodas, I would have assumed that Jim was just like, okay, sure, I'll be right back, right? But I, I really like the fact that Jim knew enough and was savvy enough. And I don't know if, you know, the Jim Olsen of the later seasons would have necessarily <laughs> like, picked up on this, but I, I really, I enjoyed this this bit, that it gave some integrity to Jim. Yeah, definitely. It was nice to see that. So at that point, we we move over to Perry's office, and we have this, you know, this this, this assembly of uh, Perry and Henderson and Lois and Clark, and uh, you know, Perry. To your point, you know, just quintessential uh, <laughs> gruff, curmudgeonly Perry White talking about how this is a newspaper, not a home for mental defectives, as as he as he as he says specifically, uh, and yeah, I mean, Perry and Henderson are both. Very, you know, they're they're very skeptical of of Horatio, right? And it's really, as you were you were alluding to earlier, I mean, it's really Lois and Clark, right, who are trying to you know speak up for him and and try to get the others to broaden their perspective of what could actually be going on. No, definitely, it's you know, Perry was ready to write him off right from the start, and Henderson just seemed to be obsessed with the fact that those diamonds were missing and that it was his fault. So they were both very one note about. Horatio, but um, Lois and Clark definitely seemed to understand there was more going on than just that. And I like too that Lois and Clark were aligned because there are definitely there have been other instances where Clark has been the sole voice of reason. And as I always say, I, I get we need to have some tension, right? Somewhere, you know, and so the idea that there's a little bit of friction here as far as, you know, what to what extent they're going to pursue the story and this and that it totally makes sense. But sometimes I just feel frustrated on Clark's behalf when he's the only one, like the most recent episode we just did last week was, or two weeks ago was mystery and wax. And it was a similar kind of thing there. Like Clark was the only one who was seeing the connection between <laughs> all of these people whose deaths were predicted. And then, you know, they seemingly, you know, committed suicide. And uh, so, so it was cool to see Lois, you know, kind of with him on that. Um, and then Jim shows up and explains what happened. And oh, my favorite part of this scene, truly my favorite, maybe my favorite beat of the episode, honestly, is when Perry barks at all of them to get out and find the robot and find Horatio and Lois and Clark and Jim leave. Henderson is just standing there, hands on his hips, like looking, I don't, I don't know. How would you describe the expression on his face? Like he seemed amused, right? Yeah, Definitely. And, and what does Perry I, say? I think, and what does Perry do? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just, 
No, I just, that's okay. I just wanted to give you because it's you know I wanted to give you the setup and then you you know you, you take it from there. But no, Perry Perry looks at him and then he goes, "Well," and and Henderson's like, oh, "Okay," like and he goes off too. I just love the idea that Perry White is bossing around <laughs> Inspector Henderson. It's it just feels perfectly in keeping with this version of of Perry and and everything. I loved it. I think Perry mows all through the series. Perry mows everybody down. <laughs> It's just, I don't think anybody wants to mess with Perry when he gets, when he gets his uh, mindset to something. So as I bring up, John Hamilton was definitely perfect for that role. No, absolutely. And as I say all the time, you know, we'll, we'll get there at the end of the season, but the crime wave episode establishes that Perry had been the mayor of Metropolis. And I always have that in my mind. I, I don't think it would have changed things at all. I think this version of Perry, this performance by John Hamilton, I think we would have gotten all of these same beats anyway, but it's just like, it just makes even more sense to me knowing like, oh, he used to be the, he used to be the guy running the city. So I was like, of course he's going to boss Henderson around. <laughs> That's great. And then from there, we go to that scene that we had already talked about where they're outside Perry's office. You know, side note, you don't typically see, um, at least in this first season, um, this this set or this part of the set outside Perry's office. Um, it's, it's not fully like we see his receptionist. It's not really the full newsroom or anything like that. Um, which we see almost, you know, very, very little of, uh, anyway, but it was just cool to see a different, uh, you know, a, a different angle here. I like that. Yeah, definitely. It's usually, I mean, I'm so used to just thinking about, you know, there's usually Clark's little office and then you see Perry's, Perry's office from the side, like the initial setup, but you don't often see outside Perry's office, that hallway area like that. Yeah. It was definitely a different, a, a different set setup than you're used to seeing. Of it, course, you know, with the budget they had, they couldn't do a lot, unfortunately with certain setups and things, but it was nice to see something different. No, I agree. Totally. I, I agree with you. Totally get why we didn't see more of that, but it was nice when you had moments like that. So pa Clark's going to go down to headquarters to uh, watch as the jeweler, right. Who had almost gotten stomped, uh, looks through mug mug shots and Lois is going to go to Clark's apartment and, and uh, see if Horatio comes back. And from there we catch up with Horatio at the, the hideout of the crooks and, uh, they're threatening him and trying to get him to use the robot to, uh, you know, burn a hole into the vault, right, and 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 steal money. And you know, he you know really sticks to his guns and and all of that. And they shove him and the robot in a side room or closet, and and that's where we have that moment that I've talked about before, where you know you see him slide over the sole of the shoe, and the key comes out, and then there's the hidden compartment. Uh, I, 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 what, what did you think of this whole bit? I thought it was very interesting, actually, because it was it was a bit elaborate. You know what I mean? Like he, like you say, he he pulled. You know, he lifted his his foot, slid the side, his heel to the side, pulled the key out, then like used the key to open the back of the robot and pull out the communicator. So it it just it seemed almost it was interesting because it seemed like he'd almost planned that something was going to go wrong at some point. No, totally. I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's the way to look at this, where there's a lot of forethought that went into this between the radio and the, and the key. He was really planning for all eventualities. It, it makes you more curious. I'm always fascinated by 
what we don't see in the episode, right? The lead up to it or what's going on between the scenes and things like that, because it's like, and I don't know, maybe I, maybe I will at some point delve into the newspaper strips or the more of the radio show with the other versions of Horatio, because uh, yeah, I'd be kind of curious because there was, yeah, like he was really planning for a situation just like this. So it was cool to see, to see all of that. And, you know, he radios to this guy, Marvin. Uh, how would you describe Marvin? A um, typical movie slash TV, like good old country boy. He was, um, you know, you've seen characters like if, if you watch a lot of 50s and 60s TV, there's a lot of characters like that that show up. Like, well, yeah, here we are. And he's as happy as a pig in a watermelon patch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's just so, just so gung ho and uh, cheerfully enthusiastic. And it's like, oh, hey, boss. Like, he's just, you know, I I don't think the gravity of the situation ever in any way, shape or form, (laughs) like registers with him. And Rocco overhears some, you know, talking uh, in, in the in the other room and comes in and Horatio's like, oh, I was just talking to the robot. And uh, Rocco removes the robot. He says, I'm going to take your boyfriend out of here, which I thought was interesting for the time, especially, right? Yeah, it just like grabs him and drags him out, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And then we we uh, catch up with Lois, uh, who's waiting at Clark's apartment, and, and the, the phone rings, and it's Marvin, and he's explaining this message that he was meant to relay to, to Clark. Uh, this was kind of one of my frustrations of the episode, what happens subsequent to this, where Lois goes off alone uh, without notifying the police or anything like that to this to this place where you know she believes Horatio to be. The, I think the one thing that makes me more okay with it, they at least went through the process of, you know, having her ask essentially like, how did Horatio seem when he gave you this message? And Marvin's like, oh, he seemed fine, right? So in Lois's mind, I guess she doesn't necessarily expect to be uh, running into the danger that that she ends up uh, facing. Uh, so I, I guess maybe that does help account. I maybe I don't need to be as as uh, as nitpicky about that, but it's just you know we've had numerous instances of Lois uh, in the season where <laughs> you know she's she's we're we're all accustomed to you know the, the Lois needing a save from Superman at some point. It's it's not that, but it's just that there have been a few instances and we've talked about them where it just felt like um, she just went so overboard or it was just so so needlessly reckless. Uh, again, I don't think this situation rises to that, but it just kind of conjures a little bit of that for me. But, uh, but I did appreciate that bit where she asked and Marvin's like, oh no, he seems fine. So, you know, she leaves a note for Clark and, uh, and, and she goes off and, um, did you have any, any, uh, anything you wanted to share about that piece of it? I think it was interesting because you were talking before about unseen things and things that it seemed like Lois was very familiar with Marvin. Yes. Like she had, so there was, um those two characters seem like they had spoken or met previously at some point. So there, there, there's a lot of little things in this episode that make you feel like this is not the first time these characters have interacted, even though it is on in this episode on screen the first time. But I've been talking about this a lot uh, as we've been going through all of these episodes, uh, you know, recently with Candy Myers, the private detective in, 
in the stolen costume or Sam, the boxing promoter, who's a friend of Clark's in the, in the no holds barred episode or, uh, the, the, the colonel who's one of Clark's best friends who he goes to talk to in Germany and double trouble. There are all these instances where there's this backstory that is just kind of assumed or alluded to. And I, I think there's, I'm, I'm, I always remain torn on this because part of me is like, well, I would want to know. Uh, and then there's a part of me that recognizes, well, you know, this immediately followed the radio show and, you know, maybe the assumption was like, okay, people know the show and they know the characters. And especially when you're dealing with characters who are on the radio show, it was just kind of assumed like, okay, that's, that's your backstory. But even putting that aside, there is, there is something to me that I've, I've, I've come to find is somewhat appealing in, in not having the backstory spilled out, spelled out, but just knowing that it's there. And I feel like it, I don't know, it just makes it feel like a little, even a little bit more of a living, breathing world of, of Metropolis, right? They're just populated by all of these people and they they have histories with them and we, we don't always get the details. In fact, most often we don't, but it's just, it's just part of it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, it's, it definitely seems there's a lot of episodes where it seems like there is a backstory between characters we're not aware of, that there is a, a whole sort of network of people that Clark and Superman interact with that we're just getting a little glimpse of. Absolutely. Absolutely. So of course, Lois makes her way over to, to the crooks hideout. And uh, this is the scene where, you know, we get the Lois scream and the Phyllis Coates uh, scream specifically. And uh, you know, again, Horatio has been holding his ground, but once they threaten Lois, Uh, And, you know, this is, again, this is season one where, you know, they grab her and they tell her to shut up and Rocco's got the hammer and he's like, I'll work over her face. You know, it it definitely, you understand why Horatio relents, right? That's a little, that actually when, when he pulls that hammer back and goes ready to hit her, that's a little disturbing, actually. Like, it's like, looks like he was like ready to, he would have, you know, the character would have gone for it. So it's like, oof. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, you know, that scene had some teeth. It, it really, it really felt like, okay, like I, I get why Horatio uh, goes along with it to, to protect Lois. And again, another good scene that just shows more about the character of Horatio. Superman, meanwhile, has been flying around, presumably trying to, you know, to, to, to find, to find Lois, to find Horatio. And, uh, you know, he goes back to his apartment and then we see that Jimmy's been banging on and at first, I, I wasn't sure. I was like, was it Clark's be- the apartment door or the bedroom door? But it's his bedroom door that Jim's been been banging on. And <laughs> Clark finally comes out. And Jim's like, you must sleep like a log. I've been <laughs> knocking on your door. <laughs> but this is a great setup because when we get, when we get to the end of the episode, uh, after Superman has, uh, has saved Lois and Horatio and stopped the bad guys, you know, they're back at Clark's apartment and then Clark again comes out from the bedroom and he's got this line where he says to Lois, like, where have you been long young lady? And she goes, well, not sleeping my life away. Like some people, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's genuinely funny. And it's, and it's also just one of those things where, you know what, this is another thing we've been talking about on the show where, you know, there are a lot of these comments, especially from Lois, but sometimes even from Perry or other characters about, you know, Clark being cowardly or ineffectual. And uh, sometimes I, I have an issue with that because like we always talk about this Clark is not that right. He's always so confident. In the th- but 
you know, you look at something like this and it's like, yeah, he seems like he's just sleeping for most of the episode to, in the eyes of the other characters. So I, I, I really, that went a long way for me. I was like, okay, I get, you know, that helps account for some of these remarks that characters make. I do agree with you. It, it sometimes it is a little jarring in the show when they do refer to Clark like that, because there's so many times where he demonstrates he's not a coward. He is not like ineffectual, but there are a few times, of course, where Clark has to sort of portray that to be able to slip off and change into Superman to save the day. So it it, it is a little it is a little odd with this version of the character because, you know, like Chris Christopher Reeves' version of Clark, definitely I can see where they would say, Oh, you know, he's a coward, he's he's you know, he He's, he's not like a manly man like he should be. But this version of Clark, he kicks a lot of butt. I mean, he definitely kicks a lot of butt. So when you do see him sort of have to fake it in order to get away, it's you would think, wouldn't they realize that this is very out of character for Clark to do this? So... Yeah, that's I am always saying that, but yeah, but this I, I I appreciated this and and I, I also like this little exchange with Clark and Jim where where Jim's like I wish we could get a hold of Superman and again we we know that Superman knows and we've just seen him flying around you know fruitlessly trying right. to find them and he's you know he's quick to tell Clark is quick to tell Jim like well you know Superman's not psychic you know there's only so much he can do and uh, I, I like I actually like that line yeah yeah no I think it was good because it shows. You know, the, the, just the limitations of, of Superman generally, but also, again, I think highlights the importance of not just Clark, but really all of them at the Daily Planet and what they do and the investigation, right? Like we need, you know, this show leans so heavily on the Daily Planet and the investigation of the stories. And it's like, well, you need that. And I think this, this more modestly powered version of Superman works perfectly for this show, right? Because like we've seen other incarnations, later incarnations of Superman where, you know, he could scan the whole city with his x-ray vision or his super hearing, right? And find someone. But, you know, this, you know, there there are limitations here. And, you know, and, and so I, I like that generally and specifically in that scene. Yeah, I thought that was a good good exchange, you know? I agree. If sometimes when Superman gets too powerful, it's like a lot of the drama goes out of what's going on. Because you think, okay, well, he can just, you know, sometimes it seems like he should be able to resolve the episode in five minutes instead of having to go through what it goes through if you make him too powerful. Exactly. Exactly. So Horatio, meanwhile, is, has been forced to, uh, you know, control the robot and use it to break into the safe. And so we're following all of that. And, you know, we had gotten this earlier in the episode, kind of the explanation for how this this robot uh, has you know the equivalent of a, you know a, a television uh, screen like for eyes, and that's how Horatio is able to see everything that the robot sees and and all of that. Um, although, wait a second. Now, as I'm as I'm saying this, when Horatio is watching the screen, is he seeing what the robot's seeing, or is he seeing the robot? Is it just what the robot's seeing, and then and then we they pull back and we see the robot? Is that it? Yeah, the, okay. yeah, we're just seeing what the robot's seeing because we're seeing we're seeing like the um, him burning through the the dial on the safe with the you know and then once they converted he, he converted his nose to an oxyacetylene torch, so you do sort of just see like it's the angle is a little off, but 
it's obvious they're trying to sort of make you see what the robot might see. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. So that all that all tracks, and I was second guessing it, but no, that that all tracks. And then again, the resourcefulness and the cleverness of of Hinkle, where he has the robot start to pull these fire alarms, right? And he's like, oh, I don't know how this is happening. I, that's still not the right voice. I'm really not. I don't know that I'm going to get this one, guys. Sorry. <laughs> but, but you know, he's, he's got That a, was better than the first time. You yeah. did a good job. So. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting a little... Cl- I mean, if this character stuck around and we had him for more episodes, I, I would get there eventually. So, uh, so, you know, all these fire alarms start going off and then we have, uh, stock footage. I don't know. I don't know exactly where it came from, but we did have footage of, of, of all of these, you know, firefighters and fire trucks departing. I saw, um, I actually watched it. My DVDs are, are kind of like shoved away in a, a, behind, um, a couple boxes at the moment. So I actually rented this on, um, Amazon prime and, um, the trivia on there said that those were from some like twenties and thirties, like films, like stock footage that were used in some much older movies, um, which kind of tracks because those fire trucks do look really old. So. <laughs> that is true. I, and you know what though? I, I, I'm on board with that. I, I, and it's not the only time that they've used stock footage, but it helps give some scope and scale to the episode Right. You know, we've talked about how we're confined to certain sets and, and the limitations of right. all of that. But so when you get something like that, it's like, OK, it's kind of, you know, expanding the world and, and you know, you just kind of roll with it. So, you know, Clark and Jim hear all of these, you know, uh, sirens and everything. And Clark calls up the fire department. And it's like, it's Clark Kent, Daily Planet, what goes on? And uh, quickly learns that there were all these false alarms and clearly worth invest. This is my this was another favorite part of the episode for me where. Uh, you know, even there are false alarms clearly worth investigating. Right. And so he sends Jim off to look into this and heads back into his bedroom. So again, from Jim's perspective, it's like, you know, <laughs> these people are still missing. We've had this perplexing situation, all these false alarms. Like he wants me to investigate and he's going to go take another nap. Like what's the plan here? <laughs> uh, I, I love it. It's, it's great. But uh, you know, that's and to, to what we were saying before. It's like, literally as this scene started, Clark and Jim are just sitting there, like just sitting there in the apartment. There's not a lot for them to do. And it's like now, okay, now he has, uh, you know, Clark has something to follow as Superman and, and, you know, presumably, you know, between, uh, you know, whatever scuffle he can, you know, hear, plus also kind of being able to pinpoint the origin of where those alarms were coming from. I guess that's what ultimately gets him to, uh, to the crook's hideout. Plus, uh, I'm sure that Lois's scream carries quite a ways. <laughs> yeah, I think that that definitely, I think that definitely goes a long way. Now, Clark, you know, we're at this point in the hideout where uh, the bad guys are are, are trying to have one of the one of the guys, Mousy, I think, has has learned enough to control the robot, right? And they're trying to have use the robot to uh, to to kill Horatio and Lois, so there won't be any clues. I think that was why. <laughs> and so Superman flies in, and. In you know all these episodes that we've looked at, as we've talked about, you know, you, you typically don't get a ton of Superman action per episode, right? You know, maybe there's something mid episode, some kind of mid episode appearance or save, but for the most part, it's at the end. However, usually when we get to the end, there's some there's some fisticuffs. There's like there's some there's some real action. How did you feel about how this climax played out? Was it was it satisfying? I don't want to say satisfying after just saying climax, but was, <laughs> did you feel like it accomplished what, what it, what it needed to? 
I thought it was really interesting way that they, I mean, basically you're seeing like foot level of Superman and you're seeing robot fart. Uh, uh, sorry. Robot parts. <laughs> I got that was all, that unfortunate slip. I'm sorry. Robot parts falling around his feet as he's taking the robot apart bit by bit. I thought it was, it was interesting because obviously they're on the set going, or oh, how are we going to do this? Because there's somebody in the suit and we can't really have him like rip the robot apart when somebody is wearing it. So I thought it was a, it was a pretty clever actually compromise to show Superman disassembling the robot. I thought what was even more interesting was him grabbing Lois like a sack of potatoes <laughs> around the waist right after that to, to like carry her out the window. She's just like, he's just here, Lois. So here we go. I'm with you. I definitely took note of that as well. No, I don't. That's the thing. I don't disagree. I think I did think that was an interesting vantage point. Exactly what you described. Just seeing that foot level shot as the robots being disassembled. I didn't really have so much of an issue with that. It was just afterwards, you know, he moves towards the the crooks and then we just dissolve to the aftermath. Right. And they're tied up and everything. And maybe it was just a matter of time or, or whatnot. And it's not that I needed to see to see him knock them out, but. I don't know. Maybe part of me now has grown accustomed to it. And I was like, Hey, <laughs> this is a key part of this. I, I wonder though, Anthony, um, like for example, as an example, Star Trek. Okay. They would film a lot of stuff on alien worlds and things and, and use a lot of their budget. And then they would do what was called a, a bottle episode where it all took place on the ship on the standing sets and they could save money. Maybe this was like the Super Adventures of Superman version of a bottle episode where, you know, because there were a lot of like other episodes around this that had different sets and things like this. And this is pretty contained between standing sets like Clark's apartment, Perry's office, and then like sort of the generic warehouse set where the criminals are. So maybe the budget had something to do with that. Yeah, no, sure. I, you know, I could, I could totally, I could totally see that. And again, it's fine. You know what I think it is? I think, I feel like in this instance, it's just because there was so little for Clark and Superman to do otherwise that kind of how quickly that fight wrapped up. Um, I, I think that just sort of compounded whatever frustration I was feeling. Like, I feel like if Clark had solved something earlier in the episode, something like that, it wouldn't have bugged me as much. And again, it didn't ruin the episode for me. It was just kind of surprising. It was just like, okay, we're just, we're, we're out here. And then we have our wrap up. Oh yeah. I, I have to agree with you. Yeah. It was a very quick wrap up. Yeah. And then, you know, so we go to, to Clark's apartment and, uh, you know, Horatio and Lois and Jim are there and, and, uh, you know, Clark comes out of the bedroom. We have the whole bit about sleeping his life away. And then Henderson comes in and still this guy, I don't, he's not a good, he's not a good investigator. Uh, we've seen this uh, time and again here, and uh, I, I guess he can't be too good because we ha- we need to rely so much on on the Daily Planet crew to solve these cases. But you know, he still comes in and he's still you know asking about the missing diamonds. This was another area where I feel like the episode something something didn't come together because Clark essentially retrieves the diamonds from the 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 wreckage of the robot. But we're never give. What is your understanding of how how they got in there in the first place? I don't. That's a. You know what? That to me, I agree with you. That is the one like sort of like total logic flaw in this episode is that 
the robot picked up the bag, dropped him on the floor. He was walking among the diamonds and things. But Clark pulls the diamonds out of what the wreckage of his head. It's like, what? It doesn't really make a lot of sense from logically for what was shown previously. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I, I, I mean, I, cause you don't, you don't ever get the sense that, that, that the crooks had made off with, with the diamonds. Right. And then stuffed them right. in the robot. Like there's nothing that really seems to account for that. We know Hinkle, you know, wasn't, wasn't trying to steal. So it, it, it's like the robot somehow had, you know, had them, you know, in, in or on it unbeknownst to everyone else, I suppose. Because like, that's the thing. If the crooks knew that the robot had, like they would have talked about it, it would have been a, it would have been a, a plot point. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're probably overthinking it, but as it was just one of those things that got to the end of the episode. I'm like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Like, where, where does this come from? And even that review on Superman homepage asked the same question and, and kind of left it on the same note of, you know, maybe I'm just missing something. Maybe we're just missing something, but I don't, I don't think we are. <laughs> I mean, if he had like walked on him and maybe like Clark dumped him out of like the leg or something like that, it would make a little more sense. But yeah, it did. It didn't seem to make a lot of sense to have them in what looked like his head when Clark reaches in. Like, how could they have gotten up there? But maybe we're overthinking it. You're right. I, I suppose. But then you know Henderson inadvertently sets off the torch and burns his butt, and everyone just thinks it's hilarious, and and we're out, and that's our episode. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, this was a ton of fun to discuss. Like I said, not necessarily. Like I said, I, I just I don't know, a little undercooked. Maybe this this was for me. It just didn't. Uh, it didn't rise to the level of a lot of the other ones that I, I feel like have have been stronger this first season. But we, we've come to the point now, Gene, where we rate the episode. Uh, so at the end of every episode here, we rate it on a scale of one to five fedoras, and. Uh, I, I will toss it to you first, my friend, on a scale of one to five, of course, five being the best. Uh, what, what would you give this episode? I'd have to say two and a half fedoras. Okay. That's fair. I mean, it was entertaining. It was silly. Um, a lot of comic relief episodes are, are a bit, I, I won't say jarring, but they, they're, they're a bit of an odd duck in a run of a show. And um, this was definitely, a bit of an odd duck. I mean, it was not, you know, there have been times I've seen shows that do comic relief episodes where they're just kind of there and they're not very good. I mean, at least we got our beloved characters, you know, doing what they normally do. It was a little silly, but I mean, I was entertained enough. So. Fair enough. I think that's a very fair score. I'm going to go to, uh, this was, you know, there have been instances where, you know, I've gone three where I'm just sort of like, eh, okay, like it, you know, it, it was what it was. This one was a little bit, a little bit below that for me. Uh, again, I think the guest cast was terrific. I, I really got it. I did get a kick out of Hinkle. Uh, and there were a couple of fun bits, you know, I guess inadvertently funny things with Henderson, you know, with Perry and with Clark that we talked about. Um, but yeah, overall, there was just something for me that was just kind of missing from this. But look, as I always say, there's anyone out there who just like loves this episode. Awesome. And, you know, let me know and let me know why I, I you know, it's uh you know, we're not all going to, to have the same reaction to all of these things, but, uh, but yeah, it was, as I always say, regardless of, you know, however I feel about the episode itself, it's always, it's always fun to talk about. So it was, uh, you know, it was a great time to kind of go through this with you. Is there anything else that you wanted to say that we didn't get to? 
No, well, um, definitely enjoyed, you know, even though it's not one of the cream of the crop episodes of first season, it was still fun to watch. You know, I love these characters. Um, I, every time I hear Phyllis Coates scream, I just admire that set of lungs even more because she, she's got a heck of a scream. I think, you know, Superman would never have trouble finding her with that scream. So, um, but definitely, you know, the, I, I'm a huge fan of the show and any episode is enjoyable to me. Just in varying degrees. Yes. No, I think that's a great way to put it, right? And we love the show and that's why we do this. And uh, yeah, and some are going to be better than others. And I do think, going back to what I was saying at the top, I think absent an episode like Mind Machine, I probably would have viewed this one more positively. I, I, like I said, I think, because again, you're you're dealing with crooks, but again, a mind control hip, you know, hypnosis device uh, or a robot in this case, you know, both episodes kind of have that you know, sort of that hybrid, you know, uh, you know, blend in, in, in each case. And so I think just by comparison, this one fell short, but you know, had it, had it not been for that, like just this in a vacuum. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I would have felt differently, but, uh, in, in any event, it was, it was a lot of fun to discuss. And I, I thank you for coming on to join me for this. No, thank you. I had a great time. Definitely enjoyed it. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you, Gene. Thank you audience. As always, uh, I really appreciate you tuning in. Make sure you come back in two weeks for our next all-new episode, Adventures Await. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.